This is The Strategist, episode 814. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan. Guys, what's up? Happy long weekend, Zane. Happy long weekend. Oh, let's just get started with the show, Corey. Do you want to talk at all? Huh? Do you just it's... want to go right into the show? Huh, How many Corey? times have I think? had to say it's the kibitzing? This is why people tune in. They want to know about us. They want to know about our lives. Oh, I bet they do. I've yeah. got sweat in uncomfortable places. That's all I have to say. That's everything in my life. What a mistake. What a mistake this was. <laughs> uh, what's going on, guys? How's your long weekend? Corey, you did uh, you did a podcast finally, uh, and you did well. Congratulations on, on appearing on West of Center on CBC. Congratulations. Yeah, I, unlike you two, actually managed to get a plug-in for this podcast, so oh my God. good for me. Yeah, no, that was that was something that Stephen and I failed. I mean... We saw the big lights of the CVC and we just couldn't, we didn't know what to do. We, we were, our knees were jelly. Uh, we had no idea how to, how to make it happen. And Stephen, of course, you had a big moment this week. Uh, you got into a, a passive aggressive fight with Jesse Brown on Twitter. So, I mean, it's, it's really the strategist playbook. Is it passive aggressive when Jesse just admits that no one listens to or reads his stuff? Is that, I, I don't understand. Like, no one read it, Jesse. No one reads your, your stuff. Yes. That is the truth. Sorry. Not sorry. Well, this is accessible. This yeah, is good. good. This is good. They're here for this, uh, Corey. The people want this. This is what they're here for. Stephen, of course, uh, adding more fuel to the fire to our ongoing rivalry with uh, Canada Land. Uh, of course, they know about us. I just want to put that out there. They know who yeah. we are. They know right? who we are. They, they, they pretend they know not to. They yeah, pretend not to. It's, it's a thing he does. Yeah. Uh, but they know who we are. Certainly. Corey, you look uncomfortable. You are not enjoying this. He always looks uncomfortable. This is the yeah. this is what happens. You and I chat. Corey looks uncomfortable. Then when he he signals us by taking off his hat, and when he takes off his hat and rubs his forehead, we know that we've gone too far. We're not quite there yet. Just a couple more minutes. <laughs> yeah, we'll just watch him uncomfortably. You know what? I'm, I'm actually going to save us from that, and let's move it on to our first segment. Okay. We have no choice, Stephen Carter. We have to do it. We have to go. Oh, I know. With, I know. Okay. It's so bad. We have to do it. But do not worry. There are games. Our first segment is Testimony Thermometer. Now, of course, we play this every time our head of state testifies to the Finance Committee. And we've played it before uh, back in the 1800s. I don't know. The 1900s know. at some point. Corey will find out for us. Of course, Chester was hosting the show back then. Uh, uh, Prime but- Ministers have spoken to committees quite a few times in the past. It's not the rarest thing in the world. I don't know if it was the Finance Committee in all those times. You know, his dad spoke to committees four years in a row. So it's a Trudeau yeah. thing. Nerd alert. Uh, okay, Corey, thank you. I, you. I just expected a, oh, this is the year it happened, but thank you for the entire uh, history on, on committees and prime ministers showing up to them. Here's what we're doing. We're doing testimony thermometer. I am going to go through individually with all the testimony we've heard. We're going to go through the Kielberger brothers. Of course, do them together. They've they've been joined at the hip since they were teenagers. We'll do them together. We'll go through Trudeau. We'll go through Telford. And here's what you need to do. You need to give me a response from my Minus 10 on the thermometer, which means very shitty, uh, all the way to plus 10, which means in normal summer terms, not great weather, but the highest that this thermometer goes. It's a very cheap thermometer. So between minus 10 and plus 10, and and please answer the fucking questions. I, I cannot oh. have you go lightning round on me on these. We're going to use it. No, this one I'm paying attention. You're going to pay attention. I was listening the whole time. I was. I was really paying yeah, okay. attention. Yeah, this okay. Is, this is not going to go well for us. Okay, <laughs> let's start. Let's start here. 
with Corey first and the Kilberger uh, brothers. We go with minus 10 to plus 10. Where do you put them? And then tell us why. I guess I put them at about a minus five because nothing is going particularly well for them, but they've been in a bad spot for so long. I I don't know that things got materially worse for them, but that committee performance of theirs certainly didn't move them any far forward. So uh, they have a problem. They have funders who are fleeing from them because one of the reasons why big corporations fund an organization like we is that they can pat themselves on the back and talk about all the social good they do. If there's no PR bump to funding we, then my God, you'd only actually be doing about it because you actually care about the charity. And, and let's be, let's be real. Corporations are far too cynical for that. And, um, and then if you look even a little bit beyond that, they continue to get pulled deeper and deeper into all of these quarrels with all of these different people. Uh, most recently, of course, we saw that they've been spending money on political consultants in the United States. I don't think that shocks any of us on this podcast. We've all done work like that for clients in the past. You'd be surprised the kinds of people who want to have political advice provided to them. And there's all sorts of legitimate reasons for it. But it just continues to paint a picture of, of a charity run amok, rightly or wrongly, and they just can't can't get out of it. They're 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 in they're in rough at this point, and uh, it's going to be tough for them to pull both their personal reputations and their charity's reputation out of this ditch. Carter, before I go to you on the Kielberger brothers, Corey, you know, you've said on this podcast numerous times that the audience that they're primarily playing for leading up to this uh, testimony that they gave was the corporate boardroom, was their sponsors and funders. Would you say that they were a minus five on that scale, too, or were they worse as it relates to to perhaps how their message and perhaps their message in the form of how they present it as well resonated with corporate boardrooms? Well, maybe worse. I, I, I don't know if I can parse it out like that. They, they certainly played badly with the public as a whole, but that is why they played badly with the corporations. And I think those who were watching quite closely, quite intently, were probably a little bit alarmed by some of their um, answers to the committee. It, it, seemed, it seemed like they were dodging. It seemed a little bit smarmy. The, the coziness that they were accused of was on full display. I think it was really bad advice, whoever suggested to them, kind of telling Charlie Angus, hey, yeah, your your kids uh, participate in this charity. I have no idea why they thought that was going to play at all, at all. And uh, it just created this sense of, of entitlement on full display, uh, very, uh, very evasive, would not answer questions about whether they were essentially using PIs to tail media. I mean, it was it was not a good performance. And I think the closer you look, the worse a performance it was. Carter, over to you. What do you give him on the minus 10 to plus 10 scale? I give him about a minus 8, and you're welcome. Um, but the the they were pretty horrible. <laughs> this is the accomplishment of just giving a number. <laughs> yeah, they were they were pretty horrible. And, and part of the reason that they're horrible is, and I'm going to go back to my theater career. Um, for me, they're stage actors. You put them up on the big stage in front of 20,000 people, and they play to the room, right? They're, they're big personalities. They can play to the entire room. Well, this is a TV actor world uh, when, you're, when you're testifying to that committee. And the, the, TV, um, the TV model... Uh, was they're too big for it. They filled the screens too much. I mean, the fact, you know, they're side by side, it's just filling the screen and they're filling the screen with the wrong information. Um, from the beginning, 
I've been saying for, for the, this charity, it had to get back to why they did what they did, what they were really doing, the, the good that they gave to society. And of course, the, the testimony was instead about, um, you know, things that are, you know, financial arrangements that they did, that they made to make the, the charity more financially robust. Well, what does a charity need to be financially robust for? Like the point of the exercise is take the money in, put the money out. This charity has a weird structure for a simple charity. Now, that's their structure. They explained it, but they're explaining the wrong things. And, and they're explaining the wrong things with their theater personalities. And, and that really... I think undermined their testimony because keep in mind, from my point of view, a large part of what is said doesn't really matter. It's how it's said. And those two guys, the moment they open their mouths, you know, you just kind of go, oh, you know, it's it's slimy. And it's the same way you react to um, a lounge lizard at a bar, right? Like, you know, they're a lounge lizard from the moment they walk up to you. And that's what the Kielbergers felt like uh, from the moment they entered the, the committee. Right. So that's a very interesting point, Carter, that that they were the wrong actors for the screen that they were on, that they're 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 like they're concert hall performers in your mind. I think that's a very fascinating analogy. Corey, do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I love that metaphor. And, and you think about stage acting and kind of the over the topness of it, this this idea that you want to create a sense of intimacy with everybody in your audience. And that is the wrong, wrong play for that for that particular stage. I, I think that it was a combination. They really didn't know who they were and where they were, is what I felt. So totally agree with everything Carter just said there. The other comment that really stunned me for its inelegance for that moment was when they said they thought of themselves primarily as entrepreneurs. You you can say that being an entrepreneur or a social entrepreneur is a means to an end, but... But you should be thinking of yourself primarily as people trying to do good in the world, people trying to run a charity. You are a charity first and foremost. Everything else you do is in service of that mission. And the problem is they seem to have confused the means and the end there. And that is that is going to cause them even more problems going forward. Carter, jump in. That's why you're seeing so much flight from the organization. You know, the flight from the organization is is in part because they're under the spotlight. Other organizations have been in the spotlight and they get out of it and they continue to do their work. I mean, SNC Lavalin, still there, still doing work. You know, I mean, geez, talk about continuing despite all of the bad press uh, in the whole world. Um, but these guys, this is a social enterprise that they're treating as a um, a- as an entrepreneurial profit-driven venture and it's giving off the wrong taste the 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 challenge for them is there are a hundred charities for every one good deed right like any sector you can find another charity that's doing similar work uh, that will get you the same pr bump and these guys were first and foremost experts at pr Uh, that's what they did that's what they did better but they they developed a public relations strategy that was like I say it was designed for the twenty thousand person venue. It was you know they they needed to bring a mo- the model of them sitting down with Oprah, right? Like there was no um, you know like when a, when a celebrity sits down with a, with Oprah and they're going to do uh, their their apology tour, right? Lance Armstrong sits down with Oprah and he he bears his soul and he says how sorry he is. You know the Kilberger should have watched that first. You know, if they'd done that and then they could have bared their soul, I mean, still it would have rung hollow for some people, but at least it would have been saying the right words with the right performance elements. This wasn't the right words. It wasn't the right performance elements and it totally failed. 
Carter, I want to go back to you for a second. You know, in the past, you've had this theory, you've called it the theory of celebrity, the arc of celebrity. And you've used it on politicians in the past. And I think I've stolen it uh, from you. In fact, I think I was telling the Toronto Star where recently I was uh, quoted. I don't know if you guys know that. Just in were, the you the, Star were you in the Star? Uh, yeah, I was in Toronto Star. At least, really, yeah, it's that paper of record for you know, one of those. Yeah, it's just... Uh, one day you get to the Globe and <laughs> Mail. That'll be a big day for you. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Corey's hat is off, by the way. I think he's annoyed by the fact that I was uh, in the Toronto Star. Uh, so, Carter, you've used this concept of the arc of celebrity and i want to mm-hmm. see if it applies here and 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 maybe i'll let you explain it because it's it's fascinating when you are on this arc uh you talk about the rise and the fall do you, do you feel like it applies here and maybe explain to our listeners what it is it's a, it's a great analogy i mean it, we we used it a lot with the uh with the nenshi campaign it also worked with the allison redford campaign but it also applies to trump and it applies to all kinds of different people who are in politics or in real in, in celebrity life and the arc of a celebrity is that people build you up way faster than you have earned it so you go way up very quickly and that that it is is essentially the light of celebrity. That's the spotlight on you, on you, and it goes up very quickly. But the thing is, you get to the top and you immediately drop. And we've seen uh, very few stars are able to kind of sustain their celebrity for for years and years. Like um, Taylor Swift might be one that right now it, it, everybody's got. You know, she's still at the top of her her zenith. Whereas if you look at the Kardashians, for example, their entire life is the roller coaster of up and down with celebrity. So the problem with celebrity politicians, or in the case of the Kilbergers, is that they can't, when they come back down, the crash is massive and they don't have the tools or the infrastructure to allow themselves to build back up. And this particular celebrity fall. I mean, this was this charity has been built by celebrity means. That's the public relations element that I was referring to before. They built it as celebrities. They made themselves the star of the show. And when you make yourself the star of the show, then when you fall and you collapse, it takes everything down with you. Um, and it takes a very special type of celebrity to be able to rebound from that collapse. Um, you know, Branson maybe can do that where he's got some negative things that follow him around. But, you know, some of these other guys, you know, Jeffrey Epstein doesn't recover, right? Does not recover because his whole world and and it it is the celebrity downfall is so massive um, that, you know, Mel Gibson can, can come back and still direct films, but you know, that's it. Like there's just, once you go down, you're down, you're out. Corey, you've got a Corey look loves on your face. that. Corey, Corey loves yeah. the whole analogy. I, I mean, we were, just, the Epstein thing just hit me in the face. Like, we were like so that? close. We were so close to getting him to sponsor this podcast. You know, last time. Jeez. Anyways, <laughs> well, the thing about the celebrity arc is that it's often not an arc. It's often a polynomial, mm. right? Like you're high, you crash down, and you get your redemption tale. So I do think that there's an opportunity, even when you've come down that celebrity arc, to rebuild and recreate, and people love the comeback story. So The redemption story, yeah. I, yeah. Look, I'll tell you, like the Kilbergers do have a path here. You know, it is the, I, I traveled the world for a year, I reconnected with myself, and I've learned, and I'm coming back bigger and better than ever, and this is We 2.0. Yeah. Sure, but get, get thee to the core values, right? Like this is the same, just the same advice is now being given. Is this the fifth week, Zane, that we've covered this? Fifth or fourth? I mean, it's been a long time. Um, this is the same advice. Get yourself back to the values that you choose, that you tell everybody that you want to live. And and if the if the Kilbergers decide to do that, they certainly didn't do that in the in the testimony uh, to the finance committee. 
Okay, so I want to move on, but before I do, Corey, over to you. Let's play a little bit of Monday morning quarterback now that we've seen them testify for four hours. What would you have advised them to do differently uh, when you saw that what, what their output was from that testimony on Monday? Yeah, they went in there and they basically tried to look like they were comfortable and, and even cozy with people and no big deal. And we're all pals here. And that was absolutely the wrong approach to take. They actually should have looked concerned gravely concerned, and they should have limited their answers and in, in many ways tried to present themselves less as just your pals, just happening to be dragged in front of a, a commons committee and more like citizens who are you know, doing charitable work, who are deeply concerned and maybe even a little terrified that they're at a committee like that. That would have been the proper tone and approach to take because I think that would have engendered some sympathy as people would have said, oh, hey, look, yeah, I mean, why the hell is this happening to them? And that would have played... As, as kind of a foil to the the questioning that they were getting too from folks like Pierre Polyev, right? If they had just kept it a little narrower and, and less less over the top. I mean, I guess over the top is is the way I would describe their testimony. It was um, it, it wasn't right for the moment, and it just looked, you know, as Carter said, kind of sleazy, kind of like a lounge lizard. Carter, same question to you. What advice now that you've saw what they did would you have given them heading into that? I mean, I think that Corey's exactly right. I mean, the, the the relationship thing where they knew everybody and they're all their buddies, and uh, that was that was not that's not right. I mean, you can't it's crazy. Be, you can't be the insiders um, when you're being accused of being so inside. I mean, I guess maybe they were thinking, "I'll yeah, show everybody yeah. how inside we are with everybody here." Um, but that's pretty much what the strategy was. Every party, yeah. we've got someone who's shown up to our thing. That seemed to that's be their not t- better. That's, that, I have no idea why they thought that yeah, was better. That, that's yeah. lunacy. I mean, but, you know, again, it, it, this is so maddening because it has happened. It has played out in slow motion over the course of a month. We've watched this thing just play out. And, and the whole time we've been basically screaming certain things that I want to change some stuff. I want to be able to say, you know what? I mean, don't go back to basics. Don't talk about, you know, the work that you do in Africa, you know, the, but those are the things that are foundational and they didn't do any of them. Well, that's the stuff that ultimately will kill them. And that's, that's the advice I would have given them. Uh, I like, you know, de- more deferential, more uh, out of, you know, completely out of their element. They they walk into every room like they own it. And I guess that that's part of their success. It probably is 90% of their success. But in this particular case, it is the reason that they will fail. Oh, that's a great, great piece of analysis, you guys. Okay, let's move it on to our next individual on the list, the prime minister. So on the testimony thermometer, Corey, from minus 10 to plus 10, where would you rank Justin Trudeau? I'm putting it right at the middle. I think it's a zero. Um, it actually played, in my opinion, very close to to what I predicted it would be last week, which is the, panned by critics, you know, just generally panned by the pundit class. But I think he did what he needed to do with the public on the whole. There's a, there's very few new components that come out of that. And when you are trying to explain to the public why you should be concerned because a pre-cabinet brief had a certain item on the agenda, not, like we're getting way too deep into the world of of procedural operations in a, in a privy council for, for most people to care. So I, I, you know, I don't actually think he's worse off this week than he was last week. And in that sense, he might even be better off because he made it through that committee appearance. Interesting. I did not expect you to say that. Carter, what's your, what's your rate on the thermometer here? Uh, I would probably give him about a two out of, uh, out of, you know, kind of right in the middle, but edging towards uh, better. And, and the reason is, I mean, I didn't like the, the, 
the back and forth about what the rules are. You know, um, the rules are the rules, but the perception is the rule. And and that perception uh, created all of the problems. And, and him arguing that, you know, he didn't feel like this was a conflict of interest. You're the prime minister, man. Like, a higher standard must must prevail. And if you're going to, to fall back onto... Uh, the written rules. I mean, especially given that you've 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 apologized. You said you're in the in the wrong. Why 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 take the pain of I'm in the wrong. I'm sorry, um, but here's why I wasn't in the wrong. Because here's how I read the rules. I mean, it didn't matter though. I mean, ultimately, the reason I give him a two uh, overall is that he he survived. He got through it, and no one's paying attention. Uh, everybody I've talked to this week is talking about the heat. No one is talking about uh, Trudeau. <laughs> At all. And you can even bring it up and they're like, what? Hmm? I mean, uh, sure, the media have lost their mind. But Corey's point about the pundits. I mean, they are all over this, but they were all over, you know, SNC-Lavalin. They were all over uh, the, the you know, the wrong clothes in India. Um, you know, th- these are the things that they, they get all excited about. You know, the Aga Khan general population we move through this unbelievably quick and the ultimate proof of it is, is Trump. I mean, you know, if we were Trump about this, Trudeau would have unleashed another crisis already like four times over. That's what's so maddening about this is it's so slow motion. I think he survived well. I think he's going to survive well in the next week. Um, that's two out of two out of your weird ass thermometer scale. What's weird about a thermometer, Carter? Well, you, you know, I mean, it's first of all, thermometers go all the way up and all the way down. Like, where's this arbitrary two and ten degree yeah, I'm so angry. Okay, clearly. So angry. Uh, Corey, you, you mentioned the fact that this this May cabinet meeting was the one where he first saw the brief. He pulled it. He did nothing to recuse himself between that and when they officially kind of passed this. Uh, do you feel like I, I, I take your point that that might be in the weeds for the general public to absorb. But do you feel like that that is now going to extend the news cycle on this story with that new piece of information given by the prime minister? What do you think of that? Not if they're not stupid. Now, you have a lot of people calling for uh, kind of releasing documents that would otherwise be under cabinet confidence so that they can have a full airing of this issue. There's not really good reason for the government to do that. I, I, it just resists those calls, I think, tactically is the play there. But um, in some ways, so let me be clear. Like, I, th- I think he got out. Uh, I am part of that pundit class who is really panning his performance. I don't like what I learned in it. Uh, and it does reinforce that there were so many gates that this should have failed at to me. So I I don't know how the day-to-day operations of the PCO are. I can tell you though, that a premier's office, essentially anything that gets to cabinet goes to a pre-cabinet brief, pre-brief. And um, the fact that it came, he sent it back. It came again is actually more alarming because it means at some point somebody did raise a flag and they decided to ignore that flag. Right. So it's not a process fail. It becomes a judgment fail. And, um, and he should he should be held to account. I just don't think he will be held to account. And I don't think that those details are accessible enough for the public actually to look at it and say, okay, there's a bigger problem here. I think on the whole, you're just like, it came, he had questions, he sent it back. That seems reasonable. And, and people will move on. And um, And that's maybe not how it should be, but that's how I suspect it will play out.
You know, Carter, one of the things I noticed was that he, he seemed to avoid some of the novice political bear traps that the conservatives and NDP were setting out for him. He didn't repeat the, the dollar amount, for example. He didn't do some of those things that could, of course, be used in a future video or a clip for, for you know, a future campaign mailer down the road. But if you were advising him, right, with hindsight now uh, to your benefit, what would you have done differently? How would you have structured his 90 minutes differently, uh, both from tone, message, perhaps even optics? Uh, what was what would have gotten that number higher for you on that scale? I honestly think there was only the one thing that he did wrong, and that was the arguing. I think it was Charlie Angus that he was arguing about the rules. Um, you know, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, maybe that was a calculated risk that they took in order to eat some time um because uh, you know time matters in these types of, of interrogations um uh, you know they're not unlimited but i don't know i i i think that overall the performance was good i mean i was really worried about him coming across sounding like he'd been over rehearsed and he was going to be um his his usual drama teacher self i didn't think he was i thought overall you know so i i think God, you know, it's hard to tell him to do something different when he's when he's exited about as well as you could expect politically, given from what a nightmare he was going into. Corey, what do you think? What would you have told him to do differently? Yeah, I mean, why eat some time and then give an extra 30 minutes? He was only scheduled for 60. So I, I don't know. I think um, I, I think that time management could have been handled a bit differently there. I, I know there was a lot of chaos with, you know, people losing power and all of that, but uh, there were some unhelpful detours. Uh, the rules one is probably top of mind for me as well. So I, I think you could have been narrower on that point. Okay, so I want to move it on to the next person. And the next person on the list, I'm very interested to get your take on. It's Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. Now, both of you have been in government, kind of know the responsibilities of a senior level bureaucrat, a political staffer. So I'm curious to get your take from that knowledge in mind, what you thought. Katie Telford's performance uh, map to on the testimony thermometer. And Carter, I'll go to you first. Well, I think Katie was good. I mean, I really like Katie. I, um, my problem is that she put herself in this spot. Um, you know, you're you're the chief of staff. The last thing you want to be doing is testifying in front of a House committee. Um, that's not your job. That's not what you want to be doing. Um, I thought she was fine. I, I didn't think that she... Um, made any particular mistakes. And, you know, if we go back to your thermometer, I mean, she, to me, is an absolute zero because no one's really talking. I mean, yes, there were some people talking about her. I saw her being defended by um, some liberal pundits and, and and those types of things. But I just thought that she she did fine. She got out of it. She went in, she got out, she moved on, and she didn't make it worse, um, which is probably all you can do in that situation. Corey, what do you think of Katie on, on that uh, thermometer? Yeah, honestly, um, it, it just, it didn't register good or bad. And I think in that sense, it was good. So I, I give her a pretty good marks. Uh, five is, is what I'll say, just because I don't think you can give anyone a 10 in a situation like this. But, you know, I, unlike Carter, come from a school of thought that political staff and, you know, senior officials should be neither seen nor heard, right? They should be in the background, uh, Carter disagrees. Carter likes to be in the foreground. He's well, Carter. It's, it's what he does. Well, it's because there's different times for different <laughs> roles, you monkey. And uh, and 
she did a good job of blending into the background and not being part of this story more than she had to. I can only think of a couple of exchanges during that, that I could actually even pull for you right now. One of them was with Elizabeth May saying, mm-hmm. why the hell didn't you know about this before? And, um, you know, the answer is simply it's it's a big government, you know, for it, like it's not it, it's not going to stick. I just remember the exchange because it's heat. And then um, the other one was Cooper, I think it was, who yeah. who thought that he had her in some sort of trap about a trip related yeah. to something. And he didn't like she didn't she go. Just, she was not there. Yeah, yeah. She didn't go. And she and she had some sort of response after like he did a follow up after and then he her response was like, yes, still wasn't on that trip. And that was kind of funny. And that's it. That's the only two moments I really remember from her testimony. When so I say good, good for her. Anything you guys would have done differently if you were prepping Katie, providing external counsel for her uh, heading into this testimony? I, you know, maybe I would... The Prime Minister did a pretty good job of, of I, th- I think for the most part, not looking totally peeved by the questioning. I think Katie did less of a job of that. I think she just looked really pissed off uh, by the questioning a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm sure she was. So, you know, I, I'm nitpicking at this point. Really. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about the political staffer side, which is why I wanted to get your guys' expertise without belaboring the point here, is anything you do wrong kind of wears on your boss, does it not? So if, if she were to kind of, you know, uh, go down a rabbit hole where either on the content or perhaps even on the tone, it would wear on Justin Trudeau, which is why I think it's a very interesting proxy. You have him for 90 minutes and her for another couple of hours. Carter, anything related to that that you found interesting? Or Corey, you want to jump in? Well, I just I also want to say it's really tough when you are staff and you are not used to being on camera all of the time to all of a sudden be on. I, I'm the worst for this. When I am at committee appearance, I'm just scowling the whole time, no matter what's going on, because uh, I'm just not used to being on camera perpetually for an hour and a half. And uh, and and so, yeah, it's just tough. That's all I'll say. And I think she did a great job. Carter, anything to add before I move on? No, I mean, I think actually she she was a TV actor. I mean, if you were to, to say that the Kielbergers were stage performers, she she was small. I mean, she, sure, we can quibble about her facial expressions, but, um, you know, her looking angry because she is angry, I don't have a problem with. But um, it was all small screen. Like, it was all small screen. There was no giant emotive moments. So That's true. It was all in the, it was very, the micro, the oh, micro movements. Minuscule facial yeah. expressions. Lovely. I, I, before before we end this segment, I want to talk about a few other groups, and let's start with the conservatives. Corey, you know, uh, for them on the committee, you got Pierre Parlier, you got Nathan Cooper. I think you have, I think that was it, if I'm not mistaken. But how did they perform? Of course, they are the principal political enemy. They are the official opposition. How do you think they performed on the testimony thermometer? Minus 10 to 10, given the fact they had time with Katie Telford, Justin Trudeau, and the Kielbrugger brothers, I think six hours plus in total with these folks. Give me your, your, your thermometer ranking. I am a four, and I'll tell you why. Uh, well, I think that Trudeau narrowed, uh, he got a zero from me, and Katie got a five, but she got a five for not dramatically changing the terrain, and the Kielbergers did badly, right? And so, on the whole, they drew blood from the Kielbergers, they drew the Prime Minister to a draw, and, um, and Telford just be- became not part of the story, which was a win for her, but it was not a loss for the Conservatives that she was not part of the story, so... I, you know, generally speaking, they played their part. They did exactly what they needed to. Pierre Polyev made some, you know, kind of funny dickish moves throughout the time. And it was yeah, you know, yeah. good theater. So it's fine. They, they're doing what you need to do when you're in opposition without a leader. Carter, you seem to be losing yourself. What do you give them on the thermometer? Well, I mean, as always, Corey's exactly wrong. It's a minus four. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and I'll tell you why. It, it's because uh, they continue to look swarmy. I mean, we talked about the Kielbergers and their lack of uh, of understanding of how they look on camera. These guys don't look good on camera. Uh, whether it's Cooper asking Telford questions about uh, a trip that she's not on, so they haven't done their homework properly, or, or, or if it's Pierre being Pierre. Pierre comes across as an asshole. Um, and, and it's only, it's, let's be clear, it's only because he is an asshole. I, it's, it's true. Pot, it's meat, kettle. I mean, like. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm delightful. People always write on the Twitter about how great I am. Uh, you should see my personal feed. It's amazing. Yeah, Once you block everybody who says you're an asshole, it becomes really easy to read. But the, the I, I just think that he doesn't do any... I mean, obviously, he doesn't do anything for me. I, he just rubs me the wrong way, and I can't watch the guy without getting angry. And I think that there are lots of people, lots of Canadians that are like that. And and where he r- winds up after this leadership for the Conservatives, um, you know, will he be, um, you know, the next leader's lead right-hand person in, in some of these uh, attacks? Um, that will be interesting to see. Corey, anything you would have told them to do different? No, um, I. they were playing for their base and they did a good job. And Pierre Polyev is very popular with the base of the Conservative Party. I, I, well, look, I'll say I give Pierre pretty good marks. Cooper was a ding dong. Like he adds so little uh, and they should probably be thinking about his committee assignments. Yeah, he, had the, he had, is a ding dong. He that had the is... tone correct, but it was just indignation without the content. Um Carter, let's move it on to the liberal members of the committee. I want to I want to round up here because their job was to ensure, especially with Trudeau and Telford, that they gave them some breathing room, that gave the witnesses some breathing room. They gave them time to reinforce and justify their decisions. How did you feel about how they performed in the sense of, of uh, doing those two things? And perhaps if there was other roles that they had to fulfill on that committee. But I'm kind of curious where you put them on the thermometer. You know, I think that the liberals' rules is to is to give the the principals the opportunity to hit the ball out of the park, right? To give the the exact right summation. You know, um, the set question with the set answer that doesn't look set, that doesn't you know on either front. And and I don't think they actually succeeded. I don't think that they gave them the opportunity to hit the ball out of the park on how the process was on you know was done. I saw far more. Um, uh, cogent explanation of things by Amanda Alvero on p- power and politics that I saw from from the people being questioned by um, by the the liberal members of parliament. So I don't think that the hand was fitted into the glove quite the way uh, you'd want it to if you're really going to hit the ball out of the park. Is that a really bad mixed metaphor? Yes, it is. I'm going to go with it anyways. Um, but I just don't think that. And again, I, do, I just think that most of the time these committees don't serve any real political purpose visually. Like they don't fill the visual space. Like we're so much used to, more used to the scrum. Uh, like our standard visual uh, for political interaction is the scrum, right? The politician surrounded by 26 angry reporters all screaming questions at them. That's our standard political visual. It's terrible visual, but we don't have that that history of the committees like in the United States where the committee is gaveled into session by the chair and they're going to take down the, the, the political operatives and, you know, Watergate's unfolding or the Iran Contra scandal. Our committees 
you know, don't have that theater built into them. And so the liberals and the conservatives, the members don't really know how to do it in the Canadian context. So they're, they're, they're cribbing notes from the American context and trying to, to figure out how to make it visually and entertaining, uh, piece and you'll always hear me talk about politics this way politics is theater right like if you if you can't present it into the nightly news properly if you can't put it on a podcast properly if you can't put it into uh twitter and and tiktok now uh properly then it's not going to resonate because these are the ways this is our cultural interface no one's watching the damn committee like that's not how it's consumed so you have to be able to put it into these other mediums and that's where the liberal members i think failed and the Corey, conservative members. Sorry. What would you what would you give the liberal members on that thermometer minus ten to plus ten? I they they were in the background and that's where they needed to be. They certainly didn't need to look like they were caping for the prime minister. They needed the prime minister to be the person standing on his own two feet there. So I think they were just fine. They may have been a bit underwhelming in the sense that they didn't summarize and synthesize the way that you would hope them to, but they were never going to be the sound bites. Those sound bites were for the prime minister. You cannot imagine a world where CTV news comes on and you're getting some liberal backbencher uh, as the as the voice of this particular scandal. So I'm not so fussed with that. It is interesting to, to talk about um, the, uh, the theater element that Stephen was mentioning and how high the bar is for the conservatives right now and the NDP. You know, there's multiple opposition parties, of course, uh, in the age of Zoom, right? Every single person in the committee has the ability to set their own background. You know, you can make it look like Oliver North if you are Cooper, right, with all of your flags and your your random books and shit and just this very serious looking room. Pierre probably have the same. Or you can make it the, the Prime Minister's, which has books but had more of like a cluttered home office feel, you know, the the setting yeah. um, the setting did not make it look like he was being hauled in front of a court. And um and and he had full control over that. And I'm sure there was some thought about where he should call in from and what it should look like. So uh, this was uh, this was a really interesting um, case study in in the difficulties you have managing political theater in a moment like this. We will leave it right there, Stephen. For you, that's the last time we're going to be talking about we uh, this Until episode. Next week. Yeah, yes, yeah. that is right. Okay, <laughs> the games continue because let's move it on to our next segment. You guys will remember this: bold, brilliant, or boneheaded. Oh, yes. Wow, it's been a while. It oh, has good. been a while. Yeah. Okay, so here's what it's going to... If you're new to the show, well, welcome. Uh, thank you for coming uh, Thank you for coming from Canada Land. We know uh, you're going to find good refuge here. <laughs> here is what Bold, Brilliant, or Boneheaded is. I'm going to run through about half a dozen things that have happened this week, and you guys are going to give me either the fact that the strategy was bold, was brilliant, or was boneheaded. Now, hopefully we have some agreement, but hopefully also have some disagreement as to what happened. And then give us your quick justification. So we want to run through a half a dozen of these. And Corey, I'll start with you. The first one, Trump this week attacking the American Postal Service and then going after the election date saying, shouldn't we delay it? Bold, brilliant, boneheaded? Bold. Um, Republicans were very quick to jump on and say, no, 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 that's never going to happen, right? We're not going to move the election. But he has moved the conversation, and he had to do it around this time. He couldn't wait multiple months in order for, for this to roll out. If his strategy really is one to sow doubt about whether the election should be occurring at that moment or not anyhow, uh, he's got us talking about it now. And the fact that he has voting by mail looking very suspect because the the mail system is looking very suspect. 
I, I mean, it's awful, and it is, in my opinion, criminal. But uh, it was a uh, it, it was a bold tactic, and uh, certainly, I don't think it hits either brilliant or boneheaded. Carter, what do you think? I mean, I want to say boneheaded, but I think I have to go to bold because, you know, Corey's not wrong. This is, um, you know, the strategy of undermining the election and maybe the only strategy that Trump has left. I mean, he's he's not going to be able to uh, fix COVID. He's not going to be able to fix the economy. He's not going to be able to fix his personal popularity. Um and he's not going to be able to run against an incumbent or against a candidate like uh, Hillary Clinton, who, who uh, for whatever reason, was not able to resonate with, with more than a small percentage or not a large enough percentage of the population. Yeah, imagine uh, if you are Trump and you are saying in October, let's just delay this thing. We, we now know we're about to have a vaccine. We'll be able to distribute it in a year. Uh, I got you that vaccine, by the way. You're welcome. The mail service is in total shambles. And you all know that voting's not going to work right now. So why rush it when we know that in a year it will be safe to vote? And maybe the economy's back. Maybe you have a chance then. Again, this is effing awful. Although also we're Canadians. We get to pick when elections are in a band. So we can't we can't get too righteous about this. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting, man. Let's move it on. To, oh, Carter, go ahead. Finish this off. No, I mean, it's just, I really want to say boneheaded. I really, like, every fiber of my being wants this to be a bad strategy. It is the best strategy, and it will ultimately end horribly. (laughs) It's the best strategy to end horribly. Uh, Steven, we should probably have a chat with you about strategies and how they should end. Uh, (laughs) It's a good strategy for him, but the rest of the world is watching on, my friend. This is horrible for us. Let's move it on to the Democrats and Joe Biden. You know, this week there was a report that said, uh, leaked from the campaign, that said Joe might just stick it out in his bunker doing uh, live feeds uh, and and meeting people virtually up until the Democratic convention. Bold, brilliant, boneheaded. Carter, over to you first. Uh, I think it's brilliant um, because, number one, he's his own worst enemy. Um, Every time he speaks, uh, especially when he's not, when he decides to go off the cuff, he, he sounds... Uh, like Sleepy Joe or, or, you know, kind of creates uh, his own uh, whirlwind of problems. He's doing great. Why change Why change the strategy? Him appearing less seems to me making him more popular. Um, Trump owns the airwaves anyways. Let Trump continue to screw up. It's, it's, it's actually this really interesting passive-aggressive type of strategy that uses Trump's weaknesses uh, against him as strengths. Like, he's so good at... He, Trump gets all the media, and if all you're ever left doing is replying to what Trump has done, that's a bad strategy. So this must be a brilliant strategy because it's the inverse. Corey, what do you think? Bold, brilliant, boneheaded for Biden and his team? I think it's boneheaded. I'll tell you why. This is the classic front-runner mistake. You're trying to sit on a lead. You think you can just run out the clock and you'll get to be president of the United States. But the reality is there is kind of a normalizing that occurs during an election in the lead-up to it where polls tighten and um, people start looking at this decision very differently. And if Trump is out there every day trying to run Joe Biden into the mud and Joe Biden is just keeping his mouth shut, I don't know, like a 10-point lead sounds like a lot, but maybe it's not. And um, I, you know, I, I t- we talked about this months ago. It's tough to look like a leader when you're in a bunker. And I still believe that's true. And ultimately, if he has a VP pick and that VP pick is even remotely contentious and, and so on and so on and so on, 
like the definition of Joe Biden will just continue. Now, I, I think that there is a fundamental problem with Joe Biden, the candidate, which is that when he opens his mouth, it can be pretty bad for him. But that's a, that's a mistake that Democrats have already made. And I don't think that just hiding him from the world, let's put it this way, in those few moments where he can't hide, he's going to get up on stage, he's going to do a Joe Biden gaffe, and the world will not be normalized to it. He will be in an October debate and he'll say something fucking stupid. And because it's the first time Americans have seen him in four months, it will be devastating. Just as we have gotten used to Trump's shitheel ways, we need to get used to Joe Biden's sleepy, you know, dementia grandfather ways now. And so they've got to get him out there and they've got to get Americans comfortable with him now. Fiery response. I love it, Hogan. Okay, next one over to you. So the in the in the midst of the current we scandal for the liberals, the conservatives and NDP MPs alongside uh, Duff Conacher and Democracy Watch are asking for an ethics probe on John McCallum. And for his work with the Chinese immigration company. Now, you may not even have heard of the story, but why does that even matter? Uh, (laughs) For you, Corey, bold, brilliant, or boneheaded for the conservatives and NDP trying to issue another ethics uh, probe and investigation during the Wee scandal? Boneheaded. Like, it's just a distraction. And uh, John McCallum's not even, like, around to, like, what's the point of this? Like, this is just pointless. This is a distraction. This is exactly what we warned the conservatives not to do, which is to start picking every fight in the world. Keep it focused on the issue at hand. Like, don't widen this battle to the point where people can say, oh, they're just being partisans. This is just a million things they're throwing at them. Carter, bold, brilliant, boneheaded? Boneheaded. Corey's right. Makes me sad to say. Okay, we'll move it to the next one. Carter, I'm going to go to you on this one. Uh, For this one, it is UCP Cabinet Minister Casey Madu saying he will not fire Joe Maglioka, who's a city councillor here in Calgary, uh, who, of course, had expenses uh, dating back uh, to the last couple of years, which were unaccounted for. Of course, the Minister uh, Minister Madu has the ability to fire Joe Maglioka. For those who are not following this, a little bit of a thread. But Carter, bold brilliant, boneheaded for the UCP minister uh, overlooking municipalities to not fire the councillor. Well, I mean, imagine what would have happened if this was one of the left-leaning councillors. If this was one of the left-leaning councillors, there's no question that this UCP government would have lost their mind, as they have with the, you know, they're, they're out of step with a school board here in Calgary, and they've lost their mind. The problem with governments is that when you become uh, a, a government that, that, gives back to your friends as the UCP have done. They've, you know, they're all of their agency boards and commissions appointments have been to their, to their friends, to their buddies. Um, Those, those appointments uh, are are stacked in, in their favor. And now uh, one of their buddies who was going to run for them, that was always the rumor. Joe Maglioka is going to run for the UCP. I just hoped that we would get him out of city council because he's so useless. And now he's, he's, uh, Joe Maglioka has committed, you know, this has been referred to the, the to the Calgary Police Service. This is not just a oh by the way uh, you may have have charged a little bit extra on your on your expense forms. Um, he's already paid six thousand dollars back, and there's you know over ten thousand dollars more. Um, this guy should be kicked out of council. If he's not kicked out of council, who's going to be kicked out of council? Do you wait for the police to come back? I mean, I remind everybody, the police are still investigating Jason Kenney's leadership. Um, they're not fast movers on this stuff. So my view is uh, Joe Maglioka should have resigned or should be kicked out by this minister. This is a boneheaded strategy by a partisan uh, minister that's protecting one of his own. 
Corey, bold, brilliant, boneheaded, what do you think? I mean, I think it's none of the above, but I guess I'll give it brilliant for... It's not a complete set, right? But uh, look, yes, you wait for the police. You know you do not get yourself involved in this. Um, A, you're a conservative, you believe in local government, and in theory you don't want to be involving yourself in these local contests. And B... Um, you're going to have to be starting to do things like this everywhere if you start leaving it just to the point of ethics violations. What I think is really lacking is the tools for council to deal with this uh, appropriately themselves. And so a bold move would have been to say, hey, no, we're not at all interested um, and we're not exactly keen on the idea of, uh, of councillors getting to decide who their colleagues are, but maybe this is an opportunity to bring in municipal recall. That would have been bold. Let's move it on to our next one. Our next one going back to Trump. So Donald Trump, with the financial edge that he has in this campaign over Joe Biden, still has decided to halt all TV advertising and take a break for a bit to reassess his strategy and then go back out in the field now knowing that he's down in the polls to Biden. Corey, over to you first. Bold, brilliant, boneheaded, less than 100 days away. It's brilliant. They are saving. They have not stopped their digital ads, and I suspect they are even going to ramp them up. This is where they're going to win. They have found a way to spend less on television. They have not stopped their fall buys, uh, but they've decided to reallocate resources in a way that they can justify without looking like they're light on resources and they're reallocating. They've already got costed in this notion that the Trump campaign has now got to look at things again. In fact, they need the public to think there's a bit of a reset. So they are dropping what is their splashiest advertising, but probably their least consequential at this moment. So brilliant. Carter, bold, brilliant, boneheaded. It's brilliant. Um, we, we've been long having the conversation about the efficacy of digital versus traditional, uh, especially television traditional, which is, is amongst the most expensive. Um, you know, I mean, there's a there's a place and a time for it. Uh, I don't think this is the place or time. And you're doing a campaign re- reset anyways. You've changed out your campaign manager. Um, there is no question that it's not working. You're not taking any additional reputational hit. Everybody knows it's not hit, not working. So why not admit that which all everybody knows? Uh, and the fact that this new campaign manager has been able to um, get this through at this time just shows that the, this is looking like it will be a stronger campaign in the last 100 days of the campaign than it was in the preceding 100 days uh, of Brad Parscale's uh, inept leadership. Carter, I'm going back to you on this final one for this segment. At the John Lewis funeral, Barack Obama makes a political speech calling uh, the filibuster a Jim Crow relic and then encouraging voter registration, giving a pretty fiery speech about the current administration. Uh, Mixed reviews for that part of his speech, but from your political standpoint, from your strategy standpoint, bold, brilliant, boneheaded? I think it was bold. I think I would even go bold and brilliant. I think... Um, if there was ever a congressperson who would want his funeral to be used to have a statement made, it is John Lewis. Uh, this is a man who made a statement with every action uh, for his entire life. And he, he the, the statement that was made, first of all, I don't think that it's on any level um, controversial. Um, it may be political, but it's, it shouldn't be controversial. Uh, these, are, these were uh, the principles that John Lewis stood for. You know, if if we if if Barack Obama had come in and started to articulate principles that were unrelated to John Lewis, then I think it could have been uh, a, a bad strategy. But instead, these were about the man himself, and it was about um, the vision that uh, the Democrats need to carry into the next 
uh, ideally into the next year when when Biden is the president and there's a small Senate majority for the De- for the Democrats and they continue to have their House majority because they need to get shit done and they need to get shit done in a hurry um, to reestablish these uh, institutions that Trump has just absolutely decimated. Uh, so this is the time. Corey, same question to you. Bold, brilliant, boneheaded Barack Obama uh, politicizing elements of his eulogy for uh, John Lewis. So I, I think that the politicizing component is is brilliant for the reasons that Carter already said. John Lewis would want to politicize. I think the actual things he said are not necessarily brilliant. They might even end up being boneheaded, so I'll say bold on those. The idea of, um, you know, taking on the filibuster, that's rooted in his experience, right? When he lost the supermajority and ended up with 59 Senate seats and his inability to do effing anything, I'm sure he's saying this is nuts. Uh, But I do worry the Democrats are counting their chickens before they hatch, you know? Yes, they are setting the ground to change the world uh, if, if they do manage to get the two houses and the presidency. Right. They'll be able to just run through an awful lot of legislation very quickly and and really remake America. But they really are counting their chickens before they hatch here. If if it ends up if somehow Trump maintains the Senate and the presidency, people are going to say, well, yeah, let's get rid of the filibuster. It's January. We can change all the Senate rules. No problem here. And they will point back to this speech by Obama. And that will be the justification they will throw in the Democrats face when they do it. And then God help us all if there's not a filibuster on anything in the Senate. Let's move it on to our final segment, our over-under, our lightning round. Guys, are you ready? So ready! You bet, buddy. Okay, Corey, I'm going to you first. Over-under on seven, and on the political strategy. Over-under on seven on the political strategy, because I need to couch it on that. What did you make of the UCP cabinet minister, the education minister, doing a 30-minute Facebook Live for parents talking about school reopenings, not taking any questions, not addressing any of the Q&A on the Facebook Live? From the political strategy standpoint, what, did you, what would you give her? Uh, under. I don't, I don't know why they made it a Facebook Live. In a Facebook Live, you can see exactly the volume and tenor of the questions that are coming in. This absolutely should have been a telephone town hall. You could have had more people on. You would have called and got a more general audience. And you could have just taken a couple of contentious questions, but otherwise managed the flow, and people would have no idea that you were dodging tough questions. Instead, they they showed their bare ass to the world, right? They exposed how angry parents were, and uh, that that's a a real unfortunate own goal. Carter, what do you think? Over, under, on seven? Total fail. Um, They... Corey's exactly right. There are a whole bunch of different ways that you can do this where people don't have to see all the angry little faces that are popping up during Facebook lives um, and all of the questions that are being ignored. Uh, Telephone Town Hall could do it. Uh, Zoom could do it. There's there's a number of different tools and techniques that you can use so that you can appear to be consulting but not consult at all. Facebook Live is probably the most transparent of, of the, the mediums where you can actually see how people are responding to you. And people, you know, you know pro tip, if people are going to be angry, don't show the world that the people are angry because it just, it harvests more and more anger. And that's where they are. Right now, um, the, the parents want to send their kids back to school, um, they, you know, so parents want to be on the same side as as this government going back to school, but this minister is getting in the way. It's a it's a fail for a political strategy. 
I want to stick in Alberta, Corey, and I'm going to you again on this one. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you make of the UCP cancelling the former NDP government's pilot on uh, universal child care, that, that pilot that they had going forward, from the policy and perhaps even the messaging angle of what they were saying uh, from the instrumentation and how it was targeted? Uh, give us your take on, because on, uh, we expected this to happen for a while. I think this week we got that official announcement. Uh, what do you make from that scale of 1 to 10? Yeah, it's it's a politically difficult time to roll back a policy like this because every parent I know, and I can even think of my own household, is is seized with childcare. Right, this idea that you have uh, you have to figure out what you're going to do with your kids come fall, uh, whether they're going to be in school or not, and um, and you are really seeing the economic drain of having to to be at home with your kids. God, we love our kids, but um, it, it's tough and. Uh, this this seems like it's in a basket of things that you think, why now, right? It's just this could be done in six months and a year uh, with probably less damage. And frankly, the deficit is so big right now. Why not pile on a bit more? That might not sound particularly responsible, but I think it's politically savvy. On the uh, On the messaging around this... You know, there are some angles you can attack the the universal, uh, you know, child care program if you are so inclined, you know, that I think people will jump in and say, oh, mate, why is that? And, and the universality of it is one of them. Why not have a more means tested program? People will say there are a lot of good reasons why you don't make it a means tested program. But that is an angle that I think there'd be some sympathy from Albertans. So uh, the fact that they, they latched on that and we're focusing on that, I think is pretty good because the idea that we are giving money to millionaires to help them with their childcare is something that people can instinctively say, no, I don't like that. Uh, so I actually don't fault their messaging that that much. I think their foundational problem is the policy at this moment. You know, and I, I say this all the time. I, in fact, said it on West of Center this week, but all problems manifest as communications problems. It's not that their communications are bad in this moment. It's that the policy at this particular junction is is just the wrong thing to do. Carter, same question to you, 1 to 10, for the, them canning this uh, former policy uh, put forth uh, by the NDP. Well, I guess it's a one and a 10, because this is exactly what they promised they were going to do. I mean, one of the, my frustrations when, when governments are elected, they walk away from their promises sometimes. This UCP government hasn't walked away from any. Now, they've brought in a whole bunch of other crap, um, but this is one of the things that they said they were going to do, and they're doing it. Uh, it's a one, because it's the absolute wrong thing to do, especially at this time, as Corey said. Um, I mean, right now, this pandemic is impacting women more than it's impacting men. It's impacting, you know, that women staying home and having to take care of children isn't required. It's not a requirement, but it seems to be baked in. And, and that baking in is going to take things like universal child care to unbake. Um, it's like one of the first prerequisites to changing uh, the inherent sexism in our society. So if you're going to change inherent sexism in society, you have to be able to give um, women the opportunity to put their you know, children in, into daycare. Otherwise, it retains its male-centric feeling. I mean, um, it's still an anomaly to run into a house husband. That is, I, I don't say that with, you know, any emotional investment except that to say I think that it's time we change these types of societal challenges uh, especially around sexism and race and I don't think Jason Kenney has ever had that pop into his head ever about policy uh, and therefore um, 
you know, taking away universal daycare to him isn't an issue of sexism. It's an issue. It's an issue of how much money they can save in the budget. And uh, sometimes that's not the way government should be making money, making their decisions. Um, you make decisions for the betterment of society when you're in government. If you want to make more money, go run Shell. Carter, I'm going back to you for this question. I've been meaning to ask you guys this one for a while. Uh, over under on six, over under on six, what you think the impact of the Lincoln Project will be in the U.S. Fed, uh, US election. This is the pack that has been started by Republicans uh, who hate Trump, George Conway being one of them, uh, Trump's former, uh, sorry, uh, John McCain's former campaign manager uh, being another. Uh, they've been putting out these viral videos, probably have the best Twitter uh, account that's going after Trump trolling them, uh, trolling him incessantly. What do you think their impact on this election will be over under on six? You know, I really want to say under, but the the um, because I I think Corey we, Corey and I have talked about this before when we were talking about one of their ads and and Corey was kind of you know I thought the audience of one and Corey kind of you know downplayed the audience of one. I think now I mean their podcast consistently beats the strategists in the rankings for political podcasts. Obviously, that means they're having Deep tremendous injustice. impact. <laughs> <laughs> tremendous impact. No, but they are they are now reaching the population in a way that you know. Uh, Five, six, seven weeks ago, I didn't think that they would. They are having impact uh, on their audience. And and one of the things I think we sometimes forget is it takes a conservative to speak to a conservative. Mm. And a liberal can speak to a liberal. They have different language. They have different words. They have different values. And liberals can't communicate to conservatives. We You know, there's different words that, that kind of get stuck and, and different values. This is conservatives saying to conservatives, this guy's a fucking loon. And people are saying, and they're listening. And I'm not sure that a lot of liberals are listening. I think that it's actually being heard by the intended audience of conservatives, and they're they are shifting votes. So I have to say, it's over. Corey, same question to you, over, under, on six, on the impact of the Lincoln Project in this election. I don't have a clue. <laughs> I, I actually... Um... I, I can't tell if it is resonating more with conservatives or not. My instinct is that it's not. It's being shared by uh, the intelligentsia who who love the cleverness of taking a Reagan ad and throwing it back in in Trump's face. But I, like, do we really think that the clever wordplay and the reference to a forty year old campaign ad, or I guess thirty six year old campaign ad, is that uh, is that moving votes in in Ohio? I just I I'm not sure it is. But if if it is if it is softening support of Republicans in, say, Congress or or amongst the political organizer class, I'm not seeing it yet. Now, now that said, like their videos are pretty interesting, and certainly they've got everybody talking, but I have not actually seen any results yet. So I, I yeah, I don't know. I just don't know. We'll we'll leave that one there. And for our final question. Of course, given to us by one of our listeners, a five-star review from our Daniluk, who says, strategy for podcast reviews. Though, of course, they're asking us for our strategy on podcast reviews, just so you guys get the preview there. Uh, what would your strategy be for responding to another podcast undermining your valuable reviews? See Boys in the Short Pants episode 93 at the 109.05 mark. They gave the strategist three stars. Corey, I'll let you go first. I mean, what would our strategy be, hypothetically, of course, if we were to respond to Boys in the Short Pants, never heard of them, episode 93, where they gave us three stars? So are we about to start a two-front war, like with Canada Land and Boys in the Short Pants? Is that Three-front war, Lincoln Project, fuck you, we're coming after you <laughs> as well. Uh, 
Corey. Uh, well, well, look, um, I, I think that it, it, when I look at the number of reviews we have and the number of reviews they have, I, I think I'd be very careful if they want to want to get into an artillery battle with us. Our fans are crazy. You guys are lunatics. And you'll go and you'll give everybody two-star reviews at Boys in the Short Pets, I'm sure. And those will probably be full of questions in the spirit of the strategist reviews. But... Uh, like, who are you and why do you exist? I, like, I, I just think this is going to happen organically because of our our, uh, our true believers here. So. Yeah, we would never encourage it. But of course, we'd they never just, encourage it. They no. just do their own thing. Carter, what would the official response for the strategist be uh, to, to boys in the short pants who've left us a three star review? Of course, I, the only reason I ask is one of our listeners is asking us. No, I mean, let's be clear. I saw that review. I went back and I listened to the boys in the short pants and and. Not the whole podcast. That was that was tough. But I went to the 109 mark. And what happened was they said, please give us a five-star review like you whore yourself out for every episode. Please give I've us been a- told it- to, by the way. <laughs> and if you're going to give a three-star review, the podcast name is The Strategists. So it was actually fairly clever. I thought that they did a fine job. I'm not picking out. I'm not going to start no. a war with the boys in the short pants. Not when we have our eyes on the real front, which is Canada land. Yeah, so, save your two-star reviews for Canada Land. Canada Land, they deserve the two-star reviews. And although I will tell you, the one that gets the worst reviews, and it's not just because Corey was recently on it, is West of Center. So we love West of Center. They, they keep asking us to come on it. We'll keep going on. We're trying to bring a higher level of discourse. But it seems that some people don't like the CBC. It seems Yeah, weird. it's funny that. It's yeah, funny when you put yeah. CBC on a podcast, all of some a sudden you're like a magnet for some one-stars. Yeah. More stories on the podcast wars to come. Uh, of course, the podcast wars. <laughs> the just- we're gonna get. We're all gonna get deplatformed by Apple. That's what's yeah, gonna, gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it there. That's a wrap on episode eight fourteen of the Strategist. My name is Zane Velju. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we'll see you next time. Bye.